we aren't curious in a vacuum as individual knowers. We are always social knowers. We are socially searching for questions. And the kinds of questions that we ask, we ask because of our interactions with other people and how we ask them. We ask them that way because of interactions with other people, et cetera, et cetera. So we're social um, creatures. And the knowledge that we're seeking um, isn't discrete bits of information that can be sort of grabbed, again, out of a vacuum or out of the sky and then plugged into something else. It also sits in some kind of network, a social network of concepts and lineages and, and, and um, experiences and perceptions and, and realities around it. So given that social complexity, that the social networks of the knower and the thing they're trying to know, we really need something more complex, uh, more illuminative than simply information gap filling. Hello, my geeselings. This is Mother Goose, Robinson Earhart, here with the introduction to Robinson's podcast number 98. And this episode is with Danny S. Bassett and Perry Zern. And Danny is the J. Peter Skirkinich Professor of Bioengineering at the University of Pennsylvania. And Perry Zern, their brother, is Provost Associate Professor of Philosophy at American University. So not only are Danny and Perry identical twins, uh, but they're also co-authors of a book, Curious Minds, The Power of Connection, that came out in 2022. And Curious Minds blends work in their respective fields, so physics, neuroscience on Danny's side, and philosophy and literature on Perry's, because they both do a lot of interdisciplinary research and just to, I mean, physics and neuroscience, philosophy and literature is already pretty reductive, uh, considering all the things that they research. But they blend work in their respective fields to articulate a novel theory of curiosity that as opposed to, uh, sorry, that's Mishka the Vishla shaking out his ears, that as opposed to characterizing curiosity as something along the lines of a merely uh, acquisitive characteristic, uh, stresses the importance of relationships between ideas and people in knowledge networks, uh, which we, of course, get into. So along the way, we talk about complex systems, how curiosity has been studied from a variety of different academic perspectives, like psychology, philosophy, neuroscience, and then the three curiosity embodying archetypes that they've identified, which are the busybody, the dancer, and the hunter. And then, I mean, the possible curiosity of large language models and a lot more besides. But some links, Curious Minds naturally is linked in the description. Uh, you should also check out Danny and Perry's websites. So Danny's website is dannysbassett.com. Perry's is perryzern.com. And then Danny's on Twitter at dannysbassett.com, just at Danny S. Bassett, and Perry's on Twitter at Perry Zern. And so, without any further ado, I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I enjoyed having it with Danny and Perry. As I was preparing for this conversation, it occurred to me that Aristotle might as well have deemed us the curious animal, considering just how much curiosity characterizes our, our thoughts and what we do. But as you point out 
in the introduction to Curious Minds. Curiosity, it's more than just a feeling or an action or a way of thinking, but it's also all of these things. And because it's so complex, I feel like before we delve into the various avenues of curiosity you've explored, whether that's in physics, literature, philosophy, or wherever, we first ought to narrow our scope a bit and try to say just what it is. So maybe for starters, because curiosity can apply to so many things, are you interested in the specifically human faculty of curiosity? Because just as Aristotle characterized humans as the rational animal, my my cat is also capable of some rudimentary reasoning, and, and she's certainly curious as well. I mean, I'm certainly, and I, th I think I speak for both of us when I, I say that I, um, I'm interested in thinking about curiosity across a spectrum of beings, and not just a spectrum of beings, but also organizations and institutions, so groups of groups of people, um, and perhaps even um, artificially intelligent systems. So I think that there's there's a lot of places where we can start to think about the exploration of knowledge, the creation of knowledge. Um, and innovation that, and it, it would be, it would behoove us to keep those doors open and to start and to ask where curiosity goes rather than assign in advance that it is only the purview of these special things called humans. So curiosity is absolutely uh, substrate neutral, I guess we would say. Danny, what mm -hmm. do you think? Yeah, and definitely in the scientific study of curiosity, there have been investigations into curiosity displayed by um, primates, but also by pigeons, for example. And certainly the example of the cat is a great one. So yes, I think both from the science and philosophy perspective and from our personal perspectives, we're interested in curiosity across beings. Mm -hmm. And you describe your account of curiosity as a network account. And like me, I'm sure most of my listeners are familiar with literature and philosophy, two of your specialties, Perry, and then neuroscience and physics, Danny, but they probably don't know much about complex systems, or maybe they've never heard of it. So before we just we say just what a network account of curiosity looks like, could you explain what complex systems is in a nutshell? Yeah, absolutely. So a complex system is often characterized as one that is composed of many individual parts that interact with one another in complicated ways, and that it's from that um, separation into parts and their interactions that um, that complex or complicated, unexpected dynamics can occur or functions can be made possible by the system. So a complex system typically has unusual, um, exciting, different, complicated functions that are made possible by this separation into units that interact in, in intricate ways. And Danny, you mentioned a few minutes ago that there have been studies of curiosity on pigeons and primates. And in general, though, I think different departments within a university think of curiosity differently. The, the two of you, though you're two bodies, one mind, as you put it in your book, you think about curiosity differently. And so like the neuroscientists and the psychologists explain curiosity differently. 
and within even a philosophy department, Perry, that the ancient philosophers might conceive of curiosity as a sort of virtue, while the continental philosophers might describe it in a completely different way. But I thought we might start, since you brought it up already, Perry, with psychologists and neuroscientists. How do they typically conceive of curiosity? So curiosity has been yeah, defined in all sorts of ways. I think in, according to philosophical history, the common description has been a desire to know. And as psychology became its own field of inquiry, it wanted to make that a little bit more precise, right? What is desire? That seems to lose us a little bit. Um, so in psychology, it's often described as a motivation to explore. That's a really um, canonical or traditional definition. Um, it can also be described as um, a drive or motivation to fill an information gap. So that's a, mm -hmm. um, those are definitions that are common in psychology. And then in neuroscience, Danny, you might want to jump in here. Yeah, in neuroscience, um, many investigators have considered those definitions from psychology, um, but there have been additional complications because the neural signatures of, associated with curiosity are really disparate. So in other words, there doesn't seem to be a single piece of the brain that is active when we are curious. It's not so easy as understanding the neural correlates of movement where there is a region of the brain that lights up when you move your right hand or your left hand, um, and it's a different region. So, but with curiosity, it's it's not one region, um, and it's very it's become difficult to distinguish between the set of regions that become active when we are curious and the set of regions that become active when we are motivated and attentive and being rewarded for something that we want. So reward circuits and um, and attention circuits are involved in curious behaviors. So I think the neuroscientists have, at least some of them, have said that, you know, maybe we need a clearer um, or different definition of curiosity that would allow us to isolate the component parts, perhaps, um, and that would allow us to identify why it's this particular set of regions that's being activated when we are curious. There's actually one or two neuroscientists who sort of at the end of their paper kind of throw up their hands a little bit and say, I don't know, we don't, maybe, maybe we can't define curiosity yet. Um, and maybe we should not even try to have explicit hypotheses from a neuroscience perspective about what curiosity is and does in the brain. Maybe it's too early in the field. Um, so they do recommend uh, continuing to in, run studies, but sort of maybe without precise hypotheses, which obviously is just a tricky thing to do or <laughs> get funded <laughs> or um, other things from the, from the scientific perspective. So that's an interesting place for neuroscience to be because I think it motivates turning to other fields. And returning to psychology for a moment, how does the psychological conception of curiosity relate to something called the information gap theory. And I, I saw in your book that this is this is very problematic. Well, I don't know that I would um, necessarily say problematic. I mean, the, the different frameworks that have been used to illuminate curiosity have been helpful in certain ways. But um, for us, at any rate, 
when when you think about curiosity as filling an information gap, you you imagine that curiosity is searching for a specific piece of information that is really required to fit into um, some larger larger picture, and that piece of information typically gets um, described as uh, sought out by an individual knower. So, some an individual knower a person, uh, uh, a participant in a research study wants to know something and then they end up finding that thing and then they can fill their, their little information gap. Um, but, but this, this leaves out a lot about uh, how we see the complexity with which we see curiosity on two levels, at least one is we, we aren't curious in a vacuum as individual knowers, we are always social knowers. We are socially searching for questions and the kinds of questions that we ask, we ask because of our interactions with other people and how we ask them. We ask them that way because of interactions with other people, et cetera, et cetera. So we're social um, creatures and the knowledge that we're seeking um, isn't discrete bits of information that can be sort of grabbed again out of a vacuum or out of the sky and then plugged into something else. It also sits in some kind of network, a social network of concepts and lineages and 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 um, experiences and perceptions and and realities around it. So, given that social complexity, that the social networks of the knower and the thing they're trying to know, we really need something more complex, uh, more illuminative than simply information gap filling. Mm-hmm. And I think that this idea of people as social knowers really leads into this network account. And maybe you could say now just what the network account of curiosity is and how it relates to this this term I hadn't seen anywhere before, edge work. I'm wondering if, if that's a term of art or if it just comes from graph theory or something like that. So yeah, if if we are social knowers and we're trying to get to know, understand knowledge, which is already also situated in a network of concepts, then um, then we need essentially a network account of curiosity, and that that network account we need to have some kind of fundamentals of what a network is. You know, network theory started in the 1970s, roughly in sociology, and it allows us to think about the relationship between what are called nodes. Uh, uh, which are the individual sections of, 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 a, of a network, and then the edges that connect them or the relationships. So in a social network, for example, the nodes are the people and the edges are the relationships between the people, friendship and friends, enemies, you know, family, whatever. Um, so in, this, in the same way, when we start to think about curiosity from a network perspective, Danny and I argue that curiosity is this capacity to build connections between nodes of knowledge, nodes of affect, nodes of experience, nodes of fact, etc. And that capacity to build connections is a capacity to build edges, to make edges, to make relationships between the things that that we're coming to know and experience and share. So um, edge work is a, a term that I did in the, you know, in the hideaway moment of writing, think I came up with, it seemed to make good sense and it sounded wonderful. Uh, and, uh, mm-hmm. but in it, afterwards I realized after having done some research, it has shown up in a number of different fields, especially in, uh, in eco- ecologies. So the edge work would be um, situated on the, the edges between ecological networks um, and also in art theory. So this, this is a term that people have come to for a variety of reasons. We think it's really helpful in connection with curiosity. Uh, but Danny, maybe you can precise all of that a bit more. Yeah, maybe I will just add that um, <clears throat> the network account of curiosity allows us to not ex- 
not focus on um, the piece of information that the person is searching for, and also not sort of count how many pieces of information they're searching for, or quantify people's curiosity with this acquisitional um, approach that is that is um, not monetary, but certainly agglomerative, and instead focus on um, understanding curiosity as the capacity to connect pieces of information or connect knowers to one another in a growing network. So, and that provides us with a way of thinking through the mental affordances of curiosity. Curiosity isn't just about um, collecting a, a new piece of information because you can't actually do anything with a single piece of information that's not connected to anything else. The only way that we can do something with a piece of information is if we can connect it either through um, inference or through comparison, through contrast, um, through reasoning. Reasoning requires us to hold multiple pieces of information at the same time and do something with them. So the connectional account of curiosity allows us to bridge from this notion of acquiring to something that is much more, um, much more functional to a human or to a non-human being. Um, and that function becomes then something that we can understand um, differently when people are are connecting information differently. And Perry, you said that curiosity is, or you described curiosity as this capacity to build connections between nodes of a network. And Perry, you described also how this works on some levels within a social network. But I take it that the same theory also applies to how an individual brain works. And I'm wondering, Danny, if you could describe a bit how this works or how this happens within a brain, how how this theory corresponds to what's going on. What's going on in the brain. brain. Yeah. There's some really interesting work um, recently that has shown that um, uh, we humans are able to connect pieces of information together with one another in in a network architecture and has I specifically identified an area of the brain called the hippocampus and also sort of more broadly what's called the hippocampal entorhinal system as a system of the brain that allows us to make these maps um, between concepts or between objects and they're and they're network maps so um, there's a particular piece of the hippocampal entorhinal system that codes for whether two things are connected sort of yes or no it's a binary decision and then there's another piece of the hippocampal entorhinal system that codes whether those two pieces are um, close to one another or farther away. So it's more of a distance metric. Mm. So what's interesting about that is that um, the brain does have a spot that that builds these network maps of information that we are exposed to in the world. Mm. And Perry, I'd like to turn just for a minute to uh, philosophy since we haven't touched on that much yet and Foucault after close to like 100 episodes of the podcast and it's mostly been um, interviewing philosophers Foucault hasn't come up yet on the podcast at all and I know you've done a lot of work on his philosophy and I just thought we might talk a bit about how he conceived of curiosity yeah Michel Foucault was a French theorist um, really working in the 60s, 70s, 80s, um, early 80s. And um, one of the things he's best known for is insisting that power and knowledge can't be thought apart from one another. So he would consistently write power slash knowledge or knowledge slash power. Um, So he wanted to think about how 
institutions and especially hierarchical institutions inform what we know and how we know it and the questions we ask and how we ask those questions. So in a lot of ways, working through Michel Foucault's archive for me was um, helpful in raising these questions. Now, he was a huge fan of curiosity. So he said that curiosity was a cornerstone of his morals, which is an interesting uh, statement to make it at all to have curiosity be a cornerstone of your morals. But, um, but he, he also recommended, you know, this is the thing that, that will let us continue to surprise ourselves and break out of ruts in the ways that we think about things and in the ways that we live with each other. Um, that said, a lot of his um, work you know, is offers more of a springboard to thinking about curiosity for me rather than a thought out kind of account of curiosity. So one of the things that I work on in particular, he he um, described what he called discursive formations, which were form formate ways in which how we talk about things gets formed, and it and it has formations. So there's a way in which we come we come to talking about whatever it is. Um, fad diets, for example, or um, protein, uh, or, or in this case, curiosity, right? There are, there, are, there are ways in which we talk about things that get um, rutted in and kind, of, um, and kind of stitched down, and we can start to talk about how those things got formed and what kind of histories those formations had and how we might kind of tweak them and, and say, you know, we could start talking about this in a different way. For him, for example, homosexuality was one of those things. And that was the, the term of the realm at that point, right? Homosexuality could be talked about differently, but this is the story of how it came to be talked about the way it was in 1970, for example. Um, so I think about this in relationship to curiosity. I want to think not just about discursive formations ways in which we talk about curiosity, but I want to talk about curiosity formations, ways we practice curiosity, ways we just assume this is how we ask questions. And those formations differ within fields, across fields, um, in different settings. So the way we ask questions in a classroom may be different than how we ask questions in the grocery store, may be different than how we ask questions uh, when we're at our annual kind of national meeting of our societies, you know, of our, our, our particular academic fields. How did those ways we ask questions get formed? For me, that's, that's kind of the, the step I want to take past Foucault, but deeply, deeply indebted to Foucault. And does this relate to the network account? Because the way that we, uh, the way that we came about to ask these questions is sort of framed in this network format. Like something something became solidified, and we just repeat the same tracks in any given context. Something like this. Yeah. So I think there's two ways of saying this. One is to say, or two ways of answering this, one is to say that the really individualistic and acquisitional way in which curiosity has been talked about is itself a formation, a discursive formation. How, we talked, how we've talked about curiosity as an individual wanting to know a particular individual piece of information is a formation, a, a way of thinking about curiosity that needs to be broken, we argue in, in the book, um, and move to a network account. That said, networks offer, right, it's not just like there's one shape to a network. There's tons of different shapes to a network and ways in which the network itself works. Um, and I think we could, Danny, maybe you can jump in here, think about um, formations 
um, social formations of discourse or of questions as already a kind of a, a network structure. Yeah, I think that is definitely true. Maybe one other thing I, that feels useful to add here is that even Foucault's um, connection between power and knowledge is something that's explicitly connective and something that we um, care about and talk a teeny bit about in this book, although it's more a focus of your previous book, Perry. But I think that being able to connect knowledge with other things like affect, like power, like um, social structures, um, it becomes, or, or the body even, um, it becomes really important in a connective approach. And I think that that's certainly in line with what Foucault is thinking. Before we move on from Foucault, something you said, Perry, that jumped out at me was that Foucault conceived of curiosity as the cornerstone of our morals. And I wasn't quite sure what that meant. So maybe you could say more about what you think he meant. Yeah, so he he said the cornerstone of his morals. Uh, so it's his one of morals. one of um, three. He has three moral pillars. One is curiosity, and one is refusal, and I think the third is innovation. I think, um, if I'm remembering correctly. But it he's this is in an interview that he's doing, and um, people are at, are sort of asking him for um, how should we then live? Right? Give me the ethics for everyone. And he says, no, 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 I'm never going to do that. <laughs> I'm never going to describe ethics for everyone or moral standards for everyone, but I will describe the pillars for me. And when he says refusal and curiosity and innovation, um, part of what he's suggesting is that it's not any given practice that is itself always right, but rather a comportment to um, noticing when violence or or, um, or oppression or harm is happening and changing, refusing kind of the patterns that have led to that and getting curious about other patterns and then creating or innovating other ways of living. It's that process for him that is his ethics. Hmm. And Foucault aside, another group of philosophers that haven't come up on the show yet are I don't know if you'd want to call them indigenous philosophers, but indigenous philosophy hasn't come up on the show yet. And you also tell a tale from the philosophy of people indigenous to the Great Lakes, which is actually where I'm from. I'm from Chicago. But can you tell this tale of, and I might butcher the pronunciation of the name, uh, I think it's Nana Bozo and how it relates to your and Danny's account of curiosity? Sure. I, I think it's, yeah, his name is pronounced in, in several different ways. Um, I've heard it as Nana Bouju, but um, okay. this story is told by a number of different indigenous theorists, some of whom are philosophers by um, by self description, and um, and it's a story of what's understood as the first the first man in Anishinaabe um, literatures, and he's tasked with exploring the world. Um, but that exploration is distinctly not uh, to own or necessarily to know, but rather to relate to and learn from all four corners of the earth. And the recommendation for how he should go about uh, traveling the world is um, that each step would be a greeting to the earth. And 
we spend some time on this in the chapter on walking and we talk about walks on networks and walks across therefore knowledge networks and curiosity and walking and all of this, but there's something really distinct about um, this call that each step of a walk be a greeting to the earth, not a, not a claiming of the earth um, and, and not a um, stamping on or, or planting a flag on the earth, but a greeting, this kind of relational approach to knowledge and to exploration that doesn't, doesn't um, seek to own uh, or dominate in any particular way. That seems to be a lesson um, that's not only really important for um, uh, Anishinaabe culture, but also for, for theories of curiosity writ large. And if I do mind if I jump in here really quickly with a little bit of um, neuroscience. So there are some interesting reflections in contemporary neuroscience that 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 align with this approach to thinking. So, for example, I was just at the a meeting for the Society for Social and Affective Neuroscience, and one of the interesting discussions centered around when we are socially curious, when we want to go, when we are curious with another human, is it that we are seeking information about that human? Do I want to know what you think about X or do I want to understand your experience in Y? Or, and th that those would be kind of more nodal acquisitional um, mm -hmm. curiosities, or is it that I just want to relate that I want there to be a channel of sharing between us. Is that what's actually driving me? And I don't care what it's about. I don't care what the end point is. I just care about this, this, this kind of this greeting, not of the earth, but of the other human. So it's interesting to think about um, even the laying down of that edge, the laying down of that relation as the motivation, um, independent of what's on the other side of it. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting to, to think about these multiple dimensions of curiosity. One, there is uh, curiosity as an avenue for connection with other people, but also an avenue for, as you put it, um, node acquisition. And But speaking then of this node acquisition, could we talk a bit about how network knowledge networks are built and how they grow? And in particular, I think this might be a nice time to talk about your study on Wikipedia users, because this was an, an interesting way that science or empirical studies connect with this book, this project. Let me jump in and just and just sort of set up the Wikipedia study that, that, that we were able to be um, a part of. I was tr trying to think not, I, I was getting really stuck on redefining curiosity, you know, back in the day. And, and I decided let's forget that and let's just think about describing curiosity and and come up with a, a kind of a canon of descriptions of curiosity across the ages. And maybe the more we describe it, you know, this is kind of going back to a very um, basic scientific uh, instinct. Let's describe the thing first before we try to define what it is, right? Let's do some observation. And, and I, so I was doing that by looking at descriptions of curiosity uh, in Western intellectual history across a couple of thousand years. And one of the things that kept I kept noticing is, is that certain terms were repeated a lot more than other terms, certain descriptors. Um, and so the more I thought about that, the more I thought, you know what, these are types, I think, that are coming forward, that are really consistent across 
eras of thought and, mm -hmm. and even across languages and cultures. And, um, and so I named the first the busybody because this is the term that, that comes up a lot. The busybody is someone who's curious about all kinds of things. Uh, so their knowledge network is super loose, right? They don't mind, you know, they'll be interested in this and that and the other thing and have a million tabs open and they feel really happy about it. And then there's a hunter and this literally the, the word for hunting in Latin and French and German and Greek, you know, is comes up repeatedly in, in connection with a curious person. A curious person is a hunter. This person is far more focused and doesn't want to get distracted by all the details, but rather is looking for a particular um, uh, uh, kind of river of inquiry, right? To sit in that river of inquiry and say, this is where I'm going. This is what I want to know about. And then the last is the dancer. I, I, I saw words like dance, but also um, words like leaping and jumping. And there was some, and imagination. There was some kind of kind of curious person who really wanted to imagine and create in the moment that they were being curious. They, they, wouldn't, they weren't stuck with just collecting information that everybody else was gathering or kind of answering a particular question for themselves, but rather they wanted to make, they wanted to imagine. So that, that person's the dancer. So we have the busybody, the hunter, and the dancer as these types or these uh, um, characters in the, in the history of, of, of Western thought who are curious. And then Danny said, well, you know, <laughs> I don't know. Are those still here today? Yeah, exactly. Um, and so in trying to answer the question, are those styles still here today? We collaborated with David Leiden Staley, who's at the Annenberg School of Communication at Penn. And um, he ran this study where he invited 149 participants to browse Wikipedia for 15 minutes a day for 21 days. Mm. And um, they uh, consented to us downloading a little app onto their computer that would um, log uh, which pages on Wikipedia they were going through. So not which pages they went throughout the entire internet, but which pages of Wikipedia they went to, how much time they spent on each page in Wikipedia, um, and how they transitioned from one page to another. So that's the information that we acquired. That means that we acquired over five hours of data per person. And collectively, over the 149 participants, we had over 18,000 um, pages visited in Wikipedia. So it was really a massive study that allowed us to understand more about how humans walk through an idea space. In this case, it's the idea space of an online encyclopedia. So then to address whether we saw these particular styles, um, what we did is that we calculated the semantic distances between any two pages that, that the humans walked between. And those semantic differences are, or distances are, are sort of assessments of the, the, how different the meanings are of the two pages. We can use, to do that, we can use uh, natural language processing techniques. And specifically, there's this um, a technique that's called the term frequency inverse document frequency, or it's a metric that quantifies how similar the terms are on the two pages after dismissing simple words like articles or prepositions or pronouns. Um, so using that, we were able to say, we were able to determine whether a human was walking between nearby um, pages or more distant pages, whether they were taking small steps or, or leaps, and also whether they were coming back to um, earlier visited pages or sort of making triangles or clustered structures um, as they were walking. And by doing this, we could see that there's a whole continuum of, of human behavior from people who are very busybody-like so or butterfly-like. Those are the people who are moving from one Wikipedia page to another that's that's wildly different um, 
And then all the way through to people who are much more like the hunter, moving between pages that are really nearby, all focused on um, a similar set of ideas. And then there were people in between who really we couldn't categorize as either um, a busybody or as a hunter. They were kind of showing features of both. And um, so that was an exciting illustration, a use of existing um, you know, contemporary techniques for online experiments, um, but also uh, techniques in natural language processing to determine whether these same styles are alive and well today, which apparently they are. We are now in collaboration with the Wikimedia Foundation um, to move beyond the 149 participants to a much larger sample um, of data that's been collected um, completely um, uh, complete in a completely anonymized way. And at this point, I should probably point out that your book is rich not only with these great sketches from an artist, but your own sketches that I think you you point out look as if they just could have been written on a on a pub napkin, as if you two were sharing them to one another. And they make this abstract discussion of graph theory and what these knowledge networks look like much more easy to uh, perceive, I guess, quite literally. But how do these three archetypes relate to the way a knowledge network actually looks? Uh, just granted, though, that we don't have these napkin drawings in front of us. Yeah, sure. Um, so the way that the uh, no, hmm, let's see. If you took a bunch of spaghetti and you threw it at a wall, um, mm -hmm. and you looked at where the pieces of spaghetti touched one another or intersected, and you allowed those intersections to be nodes, um, and then the spaghetti would like loop around in interesting ways. That might that might be slightly more like the busybody because it would be pretty chaotic. Um, whereas, in contrast, if you took a bunch of marshmallows and toothpicks, <coughs> wait, I got something and, better. What about ramen? Okay. The hunter the hunter <laughs> is ramen uncooked. You know, when you first take it out <laughs> yeah. of the bag, it's perfectly mm -hmm. um, organized. Ordered. Yes. Yes. I love mm -hmm. that. Yeah. And I was going for like a lattice structure with marshmallows and toothpicks. But yeah. So the very, very ordered um, connectivity between, lo between local pieces. Mm-hmm. Oh, you can yeah. also think about the Eiffel Tower. That's pretty ordered too, um, or the structure of telecommunications um, towers. They would be more hunter-like. And I already alluded to this when I uh, quoted the two of you saying that you're two bodies, one brain. But I, since I haven't made this clear yet, though I probably will in the introduction, you two are twins. And I'm curious. I mean, you two have very different manners of speech. And even though you're both university professors, you do quite different work. Do you take yourselves as instantiating the same archetypes? Because I would I would guess that Danny is probably a hunter and Perry, you're probably, a, I don't know, a busybody, maybe. Yeah, we've chatted about this at, at some length, um, and we we sort of refused to settle down, which maybe makes both of us dancers <laughs> at the most fundamental level. Um, but um, both of us are really uh, markedly interdisciplinary for our respective fields, um, maybe uncomfortably yes. dis interdisciplinary for our respective fields. Uh, and so in that way, we're both busybodies, right? We, we aren't mm -hmm. uh, stuck in a, a particular 
place to talk and work, but we really like to constantly bring new things in. Um, but Danny, maybe you want to chat about us as hunters and dancers. Yeah, I think we've definitely also talked about being academics, that um, the hunter-like curiosity is one that is highly valued and that we have been trained in since we were since we started in academia. So I think we both have qualities of the hunter that have allowed us to focus in on a particular set of problems and publish in the spaces that we publish. Um, so we have we definitely have some of that as well. I think though that as we've been thinking through these three archetypes and then some others that we discuss in the towards the end of the book, we've been, I think, struck by the fact that there are different areas of different times or different areas of our life where we display all three styles. So I'll give maybe an, an example of working on a scientific research project. I think at the very beginning of a scientific research project, I start much more like the busybody or the butterfly. I read kind of eclectically. I go to conferences outside of my field. I listen to talks I wouldn't normally listen to. And I'm searching for a new idea. I'm searching for something to strike me as, ah, that would be really exciting to think about in this new way. Um, and then once I find something, then I become more of a hunter and I you know, work through a very careful scientific study of that thing, whatever it was. And then towards the end of the project, when we want to describe how our discovery impacts other neighboring fields or non-neighboring fields, or how it alters how we think about existing theories or um, existing experiments or previous experimental data, then I become more of the dancer. I have to stitch together and sort of leap between um, theories or sub-disciplines or um, other conversations, scholarly conversations, in a way that can sort of create a new space for this discovery to impact. So I think that um, an effective scientist will be one, and maybe an effective scholar, we could argue more broadly, will be one who moves between these three different styles in an, in an efficient way. And then uh, another more personal question, but granted that the two of you are identical and that you ultimately collaborate on many of the same projects, granted these two things, these two things aside, have you thought about how it was that your knowledge networks formed differently and in, in such a way that resulted in you two going in these drastically different directions within the academy, that you ended up being curious about these different things? One answer is that we're highly impressionable. <laughs> so each of us um, took our first class in our separate disciplines in college and then fell in love. So Perry took his first philosophy class in college and just decided that was it. I took my first physics class in college and decided that was it. Um, so one answer is that we're highly impressionable. Perry, maybe you had a different answer you were about to give. Yeah, I guess um, for me, it's more. It was more surprising to realize we were we after all of that parting of the uh, of the seas, um, we ended up working on this roughly this same question later in life. Um, and then you know, Danny was uh, um, working on um, the neural flexibility necessary for learning, and I was working on the philosophy of curiosity, and it, that was like the main thing each of us was working on at a particular point, and we hadn't been talking a whole lot in the years leading up to that moment. And so the fact that we had been kind of going our separate ways for, for a bit of time and had landed in a similar position was part of the, the surprise of that for us is part of what led us to actually collaborate and then on a variety of articles and then write this book. 
Okay, and then well, re- returning though now to our our main thread, we talk and um, finishing off, I guess, with the the archetypes and the Wikipedia study. We've talked about now how knowledge networks are built and how they grow, but so I'd like to turn then to how people actually navigate them. And Perry, in connection with Nana Bojo, you mentioned walks, and and Danny, I think you mentioned walks as well. But before we get into the four kinds of walk, what is the motivation behind describing moving or navigating a knowledge network in this way? Is it just for illustrative purposes, to use this term, that it's more easily understood what you mean? I think the answer might be different for each of us, but certainly from a scientific perspective, it is the technical term for how a network is navigated. It is walked. Um, And there are different kinds of walks and they're each described with specific equations. And um, it is like inherent to to the math and to the vocabulary we use around the math. So it's it's formally from the scientific perspective, um, it, it, it is, it, that's what it is. It's walking. But I think what was really interesting is that um, when Perry started to think through these things, he used the word for maybe different reasons. And so we saw that there was an interesting resonance across the disciplines. Yeah, I had um, shortly before we started talking through this book, I had taught a class on walking, on the philosophy of walking. Um, and there's a mm-hmm. number of books um in, already published in that area. And then, of course, there's a long tradition of thinking about walking in environmental literatures more broadly. So not philosophy specifically, but environmental literature. And I, one of the things I was doing in the class was trying to explore how where we're walking and how we're walking in a space affects how we think. So then when Danny said, well, how, we, how we're thinking is really already in a space that we're walking, i.e. the network of knowledge, we just both went, sort of, um, there there was some really beautiful, this is probably the highlight of the moments where our fields kind of collided and sparks flew. Um, So it it just felt like we were already kind of saturated in the literatures in our own fields about walking or that used the term walking. Um, And then there was some incredible resonance when you start to think curiosity through these lenses, these respective lenses of walking. Um, the philosophy of walking, that sounds like a very interesting class. And in lieu of asking about that class, the first of the, the first of the four walks that you describe these ways of navigating a knowledge network is, is called the philosophical walk. So maybe you're the right, right person to tell me what that sort of walk is like. Yeah. Well, I, you know, so the philosophical walk out one there, first I should just say there are many ways of navigating space that philosophers have used. So philosophers, a lot of the really well-known traditional philosophers in the Western canon have been avid walkers. So we could think about uh, Rousseau or Nietzsche or Kant, um, or as I do in this particular moment in the text, Socrates and Plato. Um, and it's it was interesting for me to think about, okay, what are some kind of maybe uh, styles or types of philosophical walks. And one would be uh, Socrates, who, as we all know, if we've met him, um, he's just a wanderer, right? He just wanders around Athens and he often doesn't seem to know where he's going and he'll often stop for no apparent reason and stand for hours on end looking at nothing. Um, He's always late to parties. 
just impossible to sort of corral, you know, and this, this feels true of the early dialogues as well. They're just sort of all over the place. And then eventually there's, you know, the sky opens and the sun shines at the end of the dialogue. And suddenly you see something you didn't see before that was being built very carefully, but you didn't know. Um, so that, that's a particular kind of philosophical walk. Some of us, some of us do this really sort of haphazard wandering around, trying a lot of different things out, poking holes in all sorts of places. And then suddenly where we're poking, you know, the wall moves, like the whole wall moves. And you can, you can now think of a, a whole new realm. Um, whereas, you know, Plato is, was Socrates' student and um, absolutely enamored with Socrates, but I'm sure frustrated by this lack of discipline uh, in Socrates' own um, walking habits. And Plato is just, and you see this as the Plato's dialogues progress, really meticulous and um, earnestly invested in building knowledge piece by piece by piece. And those pieces are discovered or found by making uh, separations or distinctions. And the more we can separate and, dis and distinguish, the more clearly we'll see this piece of knowledge can be built upon this piece of knowledge and then upon this piece of knowledge. And that's, that's an entirely different kind of way of walking through concepts, walking through ideas. And, and these are two you know, figures at the very foundation of Western philosophy that you know, most folks, if they've ever taken a philosophy class or read a philosophy book, have met. Um, and, there's, and, there's, and there's already at least two right, ways of navigating, navigating ideas or walking through that knowledge space. And then, Danny, this seems like it would be more up your alley, but are you familiar with any research that might explain why thinking and curiosity and walking are so closely associated? Does it maybe have something to do with increased blood flow or just something as banal as being less distracted by other things? It's so interesting. I haven't seen definitive work in this space. I think there is a lot of there are a lot of um, hypotheses out there, uh, but it's a little bit unclear. It could be some of those answers or some some of the topics that you have just raised could be some of the answers. It could also be that um, we when we are walking. Uh, I've, I mentioned earlier this hippocampal entorhinal system is the one that allows us to connect um, concepts or objects together in a network formation, and um, it's creating these concept maps all the time. Well, it turns out it's also creating physical maps of the world. So when we're walking from one part of a room to another part of the room, it's the hippocampus that's mapping out that physical space. So um, I also wonder whether the connection between physically walking and mentally walking um, and their, their interesting correspondences is made possible by the fact that there's this single piece of the brain that's um, subserving both sorts of computations. Hmm. No, very neat. And okay, moving on though from the philosophical walk, I think the next sort of walk is the spiritual walk. And how does this differ from the philosophical walk? So in all these cases, I'm trying to find shapes of walks, different shapes of walks that can um, we can add to the the shapes of different walks on a network that have already been formalized um, in graph theory, for example. So I'm trying to think, what are the shapes so if we have lattice and we have r random walks and we have uh, you know um, a bunch of other sorts of walks already formalized? What are some walks that have been somewhat formalized in um, 
um, philosophical writings that we could bring shapes of shapes that show us ways of navigating um, conceptual space. And so for the spiritual walk, you know, I talk a little bit about pilgrimages, which is a, um, a particular habit. And I talk specifically about um, sort of more Renaissance time um, pilgrimages to Jerusalem. So, um, and this is a, this is typically a pretty straight shot. You want to know where you're going or you already know where you're going because that's, yeah. you know, it's a sacred place. So you have to know where, where it is that you're going. And then you, you navigate it not really circuitously. You t there's typically a, a better, a best way to get there. Um, and, you know, there's all kinds of other rules. Like you're supposed to have some kind of suffering on your way so that when you get there, it, you have some kind of uh, absolution, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but then, you know, and that's pretty common in this sort of Protestant Catholic tradition uh, um, of and and sort of Judeo Christianity more generally, but then there are other kinds of spiritual walks. For example, the labyrinth walk, uh, which is more common in Eastern um, religions, where you're you're not going straight to a sacred space. It's actually the small small negotiation of small spaces in a very heavily controlled pattern that allows you to come to the present in a sense, to come to where it is that you already are. And that's where spiritual unity and enlightenment happens. So for me, it's just interesting to think about there are these thousand year old traditions of walks that um, show us ways of navigating how we think about the divine and our own calling in life and what the good is and how to, how to reach that good in our minds and our bodies and our souls. Um, and, and, but they're differently shaped. And that seems to lend something to that for, really lends something to this larger question about curiosity and perhaps in this case, spiritual curiosity. And, and might there be multiple shapes to that spiritual curiosity across the ages? And then the, the last two walks are environmental and political. And part of me thinks that an environmental walk will involve a more circuitous route, one that involves stopping and meandering and enjoying and this sort of thing. Am I at all on the right track there? Um, well, again, I, I draw on different environmental theorists who are going to have different kind of styles of, of walking in natural space. So for example, Annie Dillard is going to be really different. Um, Virginia Woolf, then um, Thoreau and Emerson and Walt Whitman and the likes there, right? They're walking in different spaces. There's different areas of nature that they, that call to them and they tend to, the, the actual shape of their walks in their life and in their writings is, is quite, is quite different. But I wonder um, if we could bring more kind of also bring this back to the questions of how, how it is that we ask our questions intellectually and, um, Danny, I wonder if you might think about citations as um, walks through knowledge space and, and some of the work that we've done there, if that could, that might bring it down to a to a, an example. Yeah, that's a really good idea um, and a good suggestion. So I think that when um, we work in scholarly spaces, um, we typically will cite the work of prior scholars or people who have published in the same space to say, you know, so-and-so had this idea, we're building on that in this way, um, or our theory differs from the theory that was um, described in this other paper. So we have citations throughout the work that we do. Um, this also occurs in journalism, um, even in articles in the New York Times, for example, they will cite a person who is working in that space or has an opinion about that topic. 
So one of the things that we've been doing is thinking about how the sort of trail of citations in a paper, this idea dependent on that idea, dependent on that idea, dependent on that idea, is like a walk through idea space. Um, and then that motivates us to ask, what kind of walk is it that we are taking when we are creating citation trails in our scholarly work? And um, one way that we could make that trail or take that walk is by canvassing the existing work in a deliberately um, yeah, in a deliberately uh, equitable way. So seeking out all of the people who have worked in this field and, and all of the ideas that are relevant. Um, alternatively, we could be walking in a way that is sort of um, what's called a biased walk, uh, and that's a mathematical term, um, a biased walk where we tend to uh, take steps in one particular direction or touch on particular nodes in a network more than others. It turns out um, that by studying how people actually uh, fill out their reference lists, that um, most uh, scholars in many different fields now of science that we've studied cite in an unequitable way. They're taking kind of a biased walk through the knowledge space, and it's biased by a couple of dimensions of privilege. Um, one is um, race and ethnicity. So there's a sort of bias to tend to cite work um, by white scholars. There's also bi a bias in, in gender. Um, so there's a tendency to cite more uh, papers from men than from women, for example, or other gender minorities. Um, and there are also correlations with the prestige of the institution that the scholar is affiliated with. So that's a really interesting example of how scholars are taking walks through idea spaces all the time and then kind of transmitting that walk to others in a way that that kind can impact the way that they build their knowledge of, of the idea spaces. And we'd really like to, we're committed to sort of raising awareness of this issue just for to um, open the conversation around um, citing the work of minority scholars or marginalized scholars in a way that is um, more equitable. Hmm. Well, before we turn on, turn to more app finish with some applications, I just had one final uh, theoretical question. And we mentioned earlier that one of the strengths of this network account of curiosity is its substrate neutrality, because these knowledge networks on which curiosity is defined are represented abstractly. And I was wondering, since uh, chat GPT is definitely like the, the topic du jour, if you think large language models like chat GPT meet your criteria for having curiosity. Yeah, I'm really curious if Perry has an opinion about this, but I will say from my perspective, um, we're actually doing research right now to try to train artificial agents to display the same patterns of curious walking uh, that we see in humans. So we can train them to act more like busybodies in a, in a knowledge space or act more like hunters in a knowledge space. And I think that's really interesting and exciting for two reasons. One is that um, they the agents can then be used to investigate spaces in a different way. Um, so rather than foraging or this sort of more acquisitional approach, they would be explicitly connecting. But it's also um, interesting because we can use those, those artificial agents to um, 
compare to humans and, and understand a little bit more about precisely what mechanisms from a mathematical modeling perspective explain human behavior. So they can sort of fill this role of, um, of hypothetical humans, and they, that can help us to distinguish between theories. So I'm excited about that. What I'm left asking, however, is if we have trained these artificial agents to display um, connective patterns of curiosity, does that mean they're curious? Mm -hmm. And I think that is a bigger question and a different question. Um, I can only say that they display the patterns of curiosity we coded them to display. <laughs> so that's where I am. Yeah. And I, I think building on that, I mean, I, I am, again, I'm more interested in asking where are questions getting asked and how are they getting asked and what, what can we learn about that there? And so for me, again, I wouldn't close the door immediately and say, well, curiosity is limited to, um, organic life. <laughs> um, for example, I would rather say what, how is curiosity working here? So, okay, it's getting trained. Does that make it, how, how different from human curiosity does that, does that make it? Um, and for me, what's a little bit more interesting there is to simply acknowledge, you know, humans are trained in their curiosity all day long. Like we've, you know, we, we, I don't know. I think we act like when, when we become adults, we get to ask our own questions, but most of us have passed through what, 12 years, if, if not more of, um, highly organized, structured education that keeps telling us how to ask questions and what to ask questions about and how people have asked questions before us and the good ones and the not good ones. <laughs> you know, um, so our curiosity is heavily, heavily trained also. Um, and so I'd, I'm, I'm interested in, in thinking in that kind of complex space of, of um, you know, um, what, is there something else other than, other than, uh, the training that goes in into each case, or what what are the kind of social structures that can explain differences in training of systems versus humans, et cetera, et cetera? Uh, that's interesting, right? That opens a whole world of of other things to start noticing and observing and, and analyzing and and studying and um, publishing about. So I, that's I would rather come at it from that perspective rather than immediately say, no, of course they're not curious. Hmm. And these constraints on our curiosity that you mentioned bring me to the last question that I had for today, which is in the last chapter of your book, you discuss how all this work on curiosity should inform the way that we educate ourselves and others. And I'm wondering what your main takeaways from this were. And in particular, you write about Leonardo da Vinci, who's always a fascinating character to hear about. So I was curious if you could say a bit about how, how he enters this discussion. Yeah, well, Leonardo um, da Vinci is often held up as a, as a paradigm um, uh, or a paragon of of curiosity, right? Of a, of a curious person, someone who's capable of art and science and language and history and all these other things. Um, and he's important and helpful in that respect. And uh, it it leads us back to you know Danny's point about about citations, right? When we when we talk about Leonardo repeatedly, we often will miss other paragons of, of curiosity who um, come from other backgrounds and have other practices and might bring other things to the table, perhaps styles of curiosity, perhaps ways of asking, et cetera, et cetera. So part of, part of what we do in that very last chapter is, is address some of these social inequities that inform um, how curiosity gets practiced, especially in learning settings. Uh, so education 
formal education, yes, but also there's a lot of learning settings that are um, not just in schools. So um, many folks have to learn things on their job. Um, they learn things at home. They learn things in their community organizing space. They learn things from friends. In all of those cases, how can we think about um, busting open some of the really restrictive tracks that have limited, again, not only what gets asked, but who gets to ask it and who gets seen as automatically a, a viable uh, leader in the space of knowledge. Danny? Yeah, um, maybe I, I think it's also worth bringing it back to a single human too, and um, how we can engage in self-education in continually as we grow and change um, throughout our lifetimes in a way that um, embraces the diversity of curious expressions or styles that exist in the world. Um, and so perhaps, I mean, for us, for example, or for anyone who was trained to highly value the hunter-like curiosity, to sort of consider in what ways has that limited the questions that we ask and the ways that we've continued to educate ourselves um, as adults? And can we consider embracing these other styles, the busybody and the dancer? In what ways would that change um, how we engage in self-education um, in our adult life? Well, it, it was great not just to talk about curiosity with the two of you, but to have two thinkers who, although obviously collaborating, are coming at it from such different perspectives and with different styles. So thanks so much for talking with me about Curious Minds. Thanks for having us. Hold on, Geeslings. Before you go, please uh, like, subscribe, follow if you haven't already. Smash all those buttons. And also, if you haven't followed me on uh, Twitter at Robinson Earhart, or if you're not joining me every morning as I eat my pint of ice cream on Twitch at Robinson Earhart on Robinson Eats. Please do so.